Welcome to The Grid, the healthcare innovation podcast brought to you by Medcase, the global network of medical expertise. On The Grid, we explore the stories of leading medical experts, startups, and organizations bringing new technologies and services into the healthcare arena. The Grid is hosted by Kyle Giddens, the CEO of Medcase. Hello, everybody, uh, and we're back for another wonderful episode of The Grid. So I'm your host, Kyle Giddens, CEO and co-founder of Medcase, and we have the wonderful Yoni Stein joining us all the way from Laguna, not Laguna Beach, but Laguna, the wonderful healthcare company. But before we get into uh, all the great things uh, that Yoni and his team are doing at Laguna, I'm going to ask him just a very easy question, which is, are you and the rest of us going to live over 120? Or do you think we, we missed the boat on that one? Probably missed the boat. Oh, no. But but Flip said there's a lot you can do in 120 years. That's true. 120 years is a meaningful amount of time. So you think like... Our, probably if you haven't accomplished much by then. It's, it's best just to... <laughs> Someone is trying to tell me something. <laughs> Uh, do you think our kids' generation, um, or two generations from now, like when when do you think we'll we'll, we'll bump above that? Um, I think the discourse should be much more about quality versus quantity of life, and that I think has been the biggest kind of humanity challenge, as you know, kind of industrial revolution and healthcare and medicine help us live much longer. That is wonderful. Uh, it comes at a real cost talk about healthcare uh, that imploded um, and then quality of life becomes a real issue with significant physiological and then more so in the last several decades behavioral and mental challenges for people that we have not seen before maybe because people were dying decades earlier. earlier yeah yeah it's the shame about life is the older you get more potential problems there can be uh, for population health. So I know that you're doing amazing things at Laguna. And from from my understanding, your mission is essentially to aid in rehabilitation and better health outcomes for for each and every one of us once we become outpatients. But before we get into your mission and all the wonderful things that you're doing, how did did you get there? Like how, what's the origin story? It all started one summer day, 20 years back. Um, but the reason I hate 20 years back is that my co-founder and I met up close to 20 years ago as geeky software engineers at Microsoft. Um, she then moved over to do bigger and better things, including getting quite deep into digital health, uh, co-founding com- a company called Vim some eight years ago, which was kind of the early days of digital health, whereas I spent about a decade more on the business and finance side of the world. Um, and both of us had personal stories that compelled us, if you will, to be passionate about this, which is, uh, incredibly common and annoying in its commonality, I guess, to many digital health entrepreneurs, because healthcare is so hard (laughs) that you kind of need that, uh, irrational engine that propels you, uh, to, uh, be motivated enough to not give up. Um, do you want to go into, you know, you know it's personal but uh 
what was the driving force for for looking at healthcare, like moving from finance into? Yeah, um, I lost my mother-in-law in September 2016, uh, very suddenly, and that was oh, a big that was a big shock for my wife and me. Sorry to hear. Um, that got us, you know, recalibrate and reconsider many things in life including moving several years later to Israel and including moving from finance to entrepreneurship and specifically digital health. Uh, and yet it has been in digital health for a while and has been through multiple hospitalizations. She's a uber competitive athlete. So breaking knees, plural, is a common thing, uh, not just knees. Uh, but uh, in any event, that was very much the backdrop and the lens through which we've um, approached this problem and opportunity in the early days of COVID. And I say the early days of COVID because COVID was a really interesting moment to be thinking about the home. Uh, home has been around forever in healthcare uh, and COVID really cemented it as a site of care that is here to stay. And I say that as a foundation on which we built through what I kind of jokingly call our geeky software engineering lens, because we get really excited about thinking, hmm, what type of remote and scalable care models can we drive in the home? And I keep talking about kind of coming back to scalable models because it matters, right? As you think about the home predominantly today, you have kind of one of two extremes either the provision of care in the home, literally the delivery of care in the home, clinicians, logistics, et cetera, and kind of on that side of the spectrum, it's certainly effective, which is wonderful, but does not scale well, inefficient, and accordingly is cost prohibitive. And the other side of the spectrum, you have kind of case management, which touches people in the home, which essentially nurse, call center, telephone, and a very kind of biologically oriented care model. Uh, and what kind of what we understood early on is, and, and kind of that said, is that the spectrum is quite more efficient, but not as effective as it could be, should be. And kind of the challenge we set out to solve is, okay, so how do we deliver an effective and efficient care model in the home? Uh, recognize is actually what drives outcomes in the home or outside of the facility, if you will, is more so the life context, as it's called, from a clinical model point of view. Uh, versus the biological perspective. And the biological perspective matters because the science of medicine is a very biologically oriented science, as it should be. But it turns out that the minute, the second you leave the facility and you go home, it becomes a much more of a complicated biopsychosocial reality. So so just, just to clarify, right? You said like life context. So yeah. do you mean all our lives that we live and the context they're in, like all our interactions on our day-to-day, -day, our environment, or like, are you talking about that as a, as a health system versus the biological system and the treatment they're in in, in the hospital? Or like we're... What? Yes to all. Uh, I'll, I'll explain. The transaction, if you will, in a hospital, in a clinic, is a purely biological one your context of your life matters none you have a disease and the disease is treated not a human being but the minute you leave the facility the human being gets in the way 
And so as you leave, there's a certain care plan, digital instructions, whatever that you should follow, adhere, comply, as would be the technical terminology. And life gets in the way. Anxiety gets in the way. Behavioral issues get in the way. You having stairs in your home get in the way. You not having ability to go to the pharmacy, pick up the drugs. Your a million things get in the way. Life context. And there's a whole body of research of the last 20 years, well published, well studied at this point, that these quote-unquote contextual errors, as in the typical establishment not paying attention to these contextual barriers getting in the way, is costing way, way more than the biological excellence or the science of medicine. So what, what you're saying is context matters. And yes. if maybe you treated the disease, but if you didn't treat the disease holistically in terms of the home environment and all the other things related to it, then you're going to have negative, you, the potential for negative outcomes increases. Seven times. It's, it's, not, it's not potential. Times, it is proven in studies pre-Laguna. Yeah. Yes, so, it is extremely significant. Well, there you go. So, so essentially what Laguna is doing is reducing that seven times to as low as possible and, and making, making the treatment outcomes more effective by basically encapsulating all those, those life contexts and, and making it easier. So clarify, exactly. What we've done, though, is this is the clinical model and you need the clinical model to be effective, right? Kind of go back to the core premise. How do you drive effective and efficient care model outside of the facility? And so to be effective without kind of, you know, spending resources in the home, which is cost prohibitive, you need the right clinical model. To be efficient and scalable about it, you need to codify that clinical model into a set of scalable and consistent algorithms or clinical engine, if you will, that enables us to drive that dynamic model in a scalable manner. And that is the other side of the equation of how we've built this. And kind of the transition from hospital to the home presents a really interesting attachment point, if you will, because the individuals, patients, members, humans going through that transition, as it would be called, are experiencing a unparalleled, unprecedented amount of pain, physiological pain and emotional mental pain. And that primes them for engagement. And so there's a beauty of serving, if you will, the right clinical model to the right person who is primed and prone to care and engage with you. You need engagement. It's of course a you know usually perceived as a proxy to outcomes, but it's not just a proxy. It's a critical prerequisite, and these acute transitions are critical as far as the pain and opportunity to help people, and then create that care model that can help them downstream. And the beauty is those are kind of a self-selection of the sickest and most expensive population that is going through these transitions. So essentially. From, from what I understand, like from your website and the research that I've done, you provide both behavioral nudges in terms of automatic reminders and all sorts of smart smart AI, as well as a, as a coach in order to uh, guide the person on the right treatment path or when, when they fall off in terms of the rehabilitation to, to bring them back to, to the, the road to recovery. It is much, much, much more than that now. And shame on us, if you will, because the uh, website is behind the latest product. 
uh, and impact the driving. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll clarify that point. The, what I like to call the clinical North Star that we have is making sure that the individual adheres to the prescribed clinical pathway, clinical care plan. As I mentioned, the reason they're not doing that is the life context. And so what we've built from a solution architecture is an engine with a member-facing app and a case manager-facing operating system that we call Harmony. The engine enables us to drive engagement with the individual and learn about the challenges that they're having through a variety of voice, text, speech, uh, journaling, et cetera, interaction, and then run quite sophisticated NLP algorithms that clue us in into the life context barriers and then so, so can we like personify this like i i'm i'm a man who understands yeah uh, like wants yeah. to understand so let's take sally sally goes to the hospital for cardiovascular admission heart failure heart failure that's a it's a trauma yeah that's, that's a, trauma. a pretty significant that's a, transition yeah okay so she gets wonderful care at the hospital they put a Stenton, what, 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 how did they save her life? They, they, would, they would do a certain procedure and would send her home with a set of instructions to follow. Okay, so like they, she, gets, she gets her instruction yeah. list now. L let me tell you how kind of present day reality would look like for Sally and how a present day reality looks for Sally with Laguna in existence. So present day reality for Sally, there would be quite minimal prep pre-admission. And more often than not, in kind of the cardiovascular example, it would be an ED, an emergency admission. She would spend several days in the hospital. Assuming it's a great hospital, as most are, she would receive wonderful care. And upon discharge, would have a heart-to-heart, -heart, so to speak, with the discharge nurse, sending her on her jolly way home. For several days, she would be ecstatic to be home, euphoric, as it would be technically called. And then the next stage, from a behavioral standpoint, would be reality hits. At that point, she would be quite anxious, in pain, physically, etc., and lost and confused as far as everything she needs to be doing. At that point, she would have very minimal resources today as far as the case management help available by the hospital to the extent she's able to reach them, or the care management help avail available through her employer or health plan. And more often than not, Sally would be on her on her own, going through a spiral of anxiety leading to lack of adherence leading to worse outcomes resulting in more often than not a readmission so like when we talk about you know adherence is this like she's now been given a plan of exercises drugs like appointments appointments that she needs diet. to go to she needs to stop eating those double cheeseburgers or something like this like all, all sorts of different things that she there's a checklist and so the checklist is both clinical and health-wise and all these other elements and so you basically collate all that information and and you check in on on each on each one of those aspects is it a self-report or, or are you or are you prompting them through the journey so with Laguna, we would obtain, right? This is kind of the typical journey, if you will. With, okay. with Laguna, we would engage for anything that is elective or scheduled prior to the admission. Anything that is emergency would be notified via ADT admission to show transfer fee upon admission and would reach out at that point. Uh, one of the core abilities for us to gather data is either via voice, via inter voice interaction or through the app. 
we can do either way. I'm proud to say that the oldest uh, digital or app user that we had was 94 years old, but obviously that is an outlier, kind of there's a higher propensity to use digital modalities in younger ages. Um, all that enables us to gather insights into the life context, uh, life context that is getting in the way, potentially, of adhering to the care plan. It would be obtaining that care plan, one of the core features is what we call DNA digital node analyzer, and breaking down all these steps you should follow. So if you will take an analogy to uh, navigating with a kind of paper map via Google Maps. So one of the kind of first steps we would do would break it out to the turn-by-turn -turn navigation. Number two would be dynamic. So it would dynamically evolve and kind of recalculate the route, if you will, as a function of your adherence. And the third dimension of change, which is probably the most foundational, is unlike in traffic or in driving, if you will, analogy, where traffic is on the surface, here, the traffic that gets in a way to you adhering to the optimal care plan is not on the clinical surface. It's on the life context. So, so what would that be exactly? It, we, would, we would be notified that, well, we would know via the interaction and via text analysis that they'll talk about pain as an example. Okay. And pain would be a barrier. And there's a variety of digital content that we've developed to overcome and deal with pain. And so that is not uh, addressed often in digital instructions, certainly not in a dynamic and relevant and timely manner. And we would know that via the journal, via reported outcomes to the case manager. And at that point, we will make that care plan slash intervention available. And so it's a bunch of these individual barriers that present themselves along the pathway and our ability to do so scalably is driven by the engine that is driving this. Otherwise, you're reliant on the intuitive medicine slash skill and expertise of the case manager paying attention to all of that, which is highly abnormal because usually it is a set of physiologically oriented questionnaires that are driven. Yeah, so what you're saying is along the way in terms of recovery, there's often stumbling blocks. Yes. And those stumbling blocks from a case manager point of view, uh, they may or may not hear or they may not be told uh, by the actual, by Sally in, in an expressive way. And so you not only passively listen, but you actively listen so that you can say, hey, we noticed that here's this stumbling block, pain, you know, let's pay attention to that and either alert the case manager or recommend basically an easier path for for uh, solutioning that problem. Yes, and even if they are expressly stated, it's not the right ear that is listening to it because it's not the lens with which engagement is modeled today. And that's number one, number two, it's not just for recovery, like life context gets in the way as a whole. Um, acute transitions and recovery is, a, as I said, it's kind of a good entry point into the journey to build that dynamic engagement with the individual that you can then build on later. Interesting. So, you know, what you're saying is you're always listening and you always want to be helpful and you can all, you also act as almost a digital triage for, for escalation when things aren't going the, the right way. Correct. And, and it's interesting to talk about escalation. In the randomized clinical trials that we've done last year, we've looked at readmissions and readmissions avoidance. And the discourse predominantly 
is on readmission rates as if less is better, but it's somewhat more nuanced than that because it turns out that not all readmissions are avoidable. Some are avoidable, some are not. What is a non-avoidable readmission? Any um, biologic escalation that takes place post-discharge. Think uh, internal bleeding, sepsis, whatnot. At that point, you probably should go back. So avoiding a readmission is not a good outcome from that standpoint in any biologic escalation. And so what we've demonstrated is we're able to lower the preventable readmissions and the unpreventable ones actually accelerate such that people go back sooner, less acute, and drastically cheaper. And so having that insight into what is happening with the life context and biological reality enable us to mitigate the avoidable ones and to accelerate the unavoidable. That's very interesting. So what you're saying really is you're catching the people who need to go back to the hospital sooner in general and those and, and you're preventing those that would go down to the path to be readmitted for other things or uh, you know potential outcomes like you're you're giving them, you know, you're throwing them a lifeline so to speak, so that they don't have to go down that path because they were able to get the treatment and intervention at home. Yes, we're driving better outcomes at a lower cost, which is kind of a cliche, if you will, in healthcare, because who doesn't want to do that? Uh, but this- that, that, and, that is literally the biggest cliche in health. But if you're able to showcase it, then you know we all, we all become winners because you know, who doesn't want better outcomes at a lower cost? And, you know, health is health is king. Like you brought it brought it back, uh, you know, in terms of your personal story that without health, you know, what do we have? And so mm -hmm. it's so, so important in the context of life, which we're all living, is to make sure that that is as as wonderful as possible and as healthy as possible. So, you know, we can enjoy the context of you know, friends, family, a good meal, and, and everything else in between. So that's very commendable. It's very commendable. And to be able to show that empirically is, is even better. Yes. Uh, yeah. It was a uh, fortunate early decision to start the company with these randomized clinical trials. And now it's being submitted for publication. So it's exciting times to have those input studies behind us. That's exciting. And so from, from your perspective, you know what what are the barriers of adopting because you're saying if if you're if you now can showcase like and i guess this is in the digital health as a, as a whole right so what what challenges do you have up ahead if you're able to showcase that you know your interventions work and and it's great for everybody um, especially the patient so what 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 are your challenges yeah uh that is why digital health and healthcare is so hard uh, because being driving better outcomes, driving lower costs sounds amazing and it's cliche, but being able to prove that is nothing but the beginning. Because at that point, it was an exercise of, as a professor of mine used to say, aligning Swiss cheese slices of solving incentives throughout the system to be able to implement and scale it. And so specifically, Patients, users, individuals love it. They don't pay for most things in healthcare, right? Except if it's kind of pharma and kind of 
basic D2C drugs. Um, the ones who care the most about outcomes are payers and providers, right? So kind of providers with risk arrangements. Um, the entry point there and some of the challenges to your question about adoption are present day models and systems that they have. And so you certainly want to start from more forward thinking, innovative institutions who have a recognition of the pain and opportunity kind of regardless of you, the innovator. Um, that is number one. Number two, talk about the economic cycle we're in. Kind of that is helping quite a bit from that standpoint. Um, you know, digital health has been on the upswing over the last decade, and then COVID propelled it to the stratosphere, almost too much so that so much capital has been thrown at this asset class by VCs and by customers. Uh, there's been some detachment from quality outcomes and clinical and economic outcomes. All that has changed abruptly in the first half of this year as the economic down cycle is forcing plans, is forcing systems to focus on outcomes, to focus on the dollar, to deal with labor issues that are unprecedented. So I'm saying all of that is helping and mitigating some of these healthcare adoption headwinds that are typical for any digital health entrepreneur, including us. So you're saying essentially that you need innovators like yourselves to present these solutions, but you also need the, the, the systems to be ready for adoption or to be more open for, for the adoptions. And you're saying the macro economic headwinds in terms of you know, uh, potential for a recession or a current recession, depending, you know, what you're, <laughs> how you look at look at look at things, uh, you know, is driving the bottom line uh, for for these institutions, as well as labor force changes within within the healthcare ecosystem saying, we need to do more with less, and less is less capital, but also less people, yes. because both of those are, are, in, are in short supply. Exactly, exactly. And that is exactly what we're able to demonstrate in the RCT that we can drive far better outcomes to the tune of saving many thousands of dollars. Per ERCT? Or randomized clinical trial, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, driving thousands of dollars per person, but not only being able to drive that outcome, we're also able to drive it at a 10x scale factor to the typical scale of labor of case management today. And so that is kind of that architecture that I mentioned before. It enables us to do more with less Sure. So let's double click and uh, click on that. So a typical case manager at an institution will see how have how many patients under their under their belt. It could be anywhere from thirty to a hundred, but effectively they will probably be engaging with maybe twenty thirty a month. They could have a bigger caseload, but they will not be engaging. Okay, and then now Laguna comes along. And that same person can now effectively manage more, more, but it's, but it's effectively manage. Oh, the key words, both you want the nominator and denominator. You want to do more impact. And it's not about the number of people. The number of people is a proxy to impact. Cause if you can work with the same pool, 
of 30 people but drive far better outcomes, it's a huge win by itself. So it's driving better outcomes with less labor of that case management muscle. So you're saying it's both quality and quantity. Yes. Which is fantastic. Yes. And to, today, there's an assumed mediocre quality. And so a proxy of the scale factor is, can we touch more people? But it's half the story. Yeah. And then from, from that, right, what is the other half of the story? Like, what are the prevailing problems in, in healthcare as you see it today? Such a good question. U.S. healthcare that I spend my waking hours and nights on is, you know, one of the largest, most sophisticated and cumbersome industries in the world. Uh, and, and, and it's a fascinating industry that, you know, brings together some of the best medical science with some of the worst, if you will, healthcare ecosystem design. And when I say worst, it's not, I think, a kind of qualitative personal view. There's a big consensus. It's a kind of a big and bloated industry that is spending $4 trillion, 20% of US GDP a year uh, with, without kind of having folks live to your first question. To, to 120. To 120 or 220, right? Like they live as long as everyone else does um, with a comparable, if you will, quality at a far higher cost. So less efficient way of living uh, or having kind of an ROI on the healthcare spend. Uh, why is that? I think that is a, you know, a highly subjective and complicated uh, conversation uh, from the system design to the cultural views on healthcare. You can probably ask 10 different people and you'll have 10 or more different answers. That's the beauty of this podcast is I get to ask 10 different people and get 10 different, 10 different answers. So the US, I, I don't think it's about the, the system design. I think the system design is a proxy to the philosophical and political outlook of the social construct in the US. Like now we're getting somewhat philosophical, if you will. But I initially kind of got that insight at business school over a decade back is in terms of how fundamentally different the view on the right to health a US citizen or resident has as uh, driven, not by a consensus, by the way, there's a wide spectrum of opinions, right? And kind of as an Israeli, here you have uh, nationalized medicine, nationalized healthcare. And a general perspective, of course, the country should provide healthcare to you. You are, as would be the American terminology, entitled to it. In, Amer in America, that is not, in the United States, that is not a consensus view that you're entitled to healthcare. And maybe if so, well, maybe then just basic or not, that is a highly touchy subject, irrespective of the healthcare design, just the wide spectrum of views on the matter. But the reason I'm talking about it is that that gamut of views uh, uh, um, translated and manifested itself into the mostly private, non-for-profit system design uh, where the only nationalized healthcare is Medicare and Medicaid predominantly, 
that you know set the course of U.S. healthcare eighty or something. Uh, just I think pre uh, Second World War, um, and that system, as systems do, uh, grew and fed itself and got us to where we are today. Whereby even in the Affordable Care Act about a decade back. It's been extremely hard and extremely debatable to change anything, even on the margin. Mm-hmm. And so I'm saying, to kind of summarize, it's a bit of a perfect storm. There's a reason why it's the biggest, the most expensive, the most bloated industry without any kind of tangible outcomes from a quantity or quality to our previous discussion of life for the beneficiaries of the system to speak of. Interesting. And so, like, from that, you're saying, listen, people have different philosophies, and those philosophies played themselves out over many years, as well as seeing that written large in legislation, and that led to where we are today. Now, like, you've seen, I guess, two very different healthcare systems. You've seen the Israeli healthcare system, which is predominantly socialized, I guess you would say, backed by the state, so that everybody has as affordable access to healthcare, and then the United States system, which has elements of, you know, the state supporting it, uh, but is predominantly private. Now, from your perspective, you can now wave your, your magic, your magic wand, okay? You can, you can make one change, because, you know, it's, it's, it's a one shot. You can only, you can only make it's one. It's a golden fish. It's a, it's a golden fish. You usually get one wish with a golden fish. Okay. The yeah. magic wand you can wave all you want. That's true. It's like it's like a golden fish or or when you wish upon a star. Uh, okay, so you get one. Where what what would you do? And other, outside of having everybody adopt Laguna in America, that's in, in the states. That was yeah. my first wish. Yeah, your first wish is everybody should adopt Laguna. Like, and please take note. Like to all to all our listeners, but outside of that, outside yeah. of that, because go to value based care today. Period. Full stop. And I'll explain. Uh, the beauty of Israel, I think, is um, Israel is an example. Is that the consensus create the consensus from a philosophy on what you're entitled as a citizen of a given country? manifested itself in a certain system design that created HMOs whereby it's not only kind of nationalized healthcare, let's kind of call it what it is, it is a value-driven system. And so the Israelis HMO are paid by the government a certain amount per capita, aka capitated model, and now it's on them. And if the individual is healthy, then it's all profit. Amazing. And if the individual is healthy, it's all uh, an expense. That aligns the healthcare provider and plan to drive health outcomes, right? Versus fee for service, they're like, okay, more fees, more service. It's kind of the polar opposite. And so to me, that is the, again, it's not the crux of the problem. The crux of the problem to my previous comment is the philosophical divergence on views on healthcare entitlements, et cetera. And that is very deep, obviously. Uh, But I think value-based care is a kind of magic wand, golden fish solution because that creates 
incentives alignment and it's kind of geeky and economic it sounds i think that is the uh, uh, um, where, where, where the money goes things things follow is that what you would say yes yeah it's the, it's the beauty of economics and capitalism in terms of driving forces for for change it, it, it's not out of lack of of medicine or digital tools or any of those barriers all of these barriers are solvable though some of the smartest people on earth working on these problems it is the willingness to adopt and that willingness is driven by incentives and forcing functions yeah i i know that there's been a change in legislation for for value-based care like do you think it's going to have a real impact at least in this decade i hope so the last decade has seen a very gradual adoption of value-based care. Still, 90 to 95% of U.S. health systems are predominantly fee-for-service. And even out of the many hundreds of ACOs, accountable care organizations, which are risk arrangements to the provider and the plan, whereby they assume certain risks, it is more often than not on the margin, those upside and downside risk, we can get into that. Um, so thus far it has been minimal and I think, um, the way to solve it is in kind of a huge change and it's extremely difficult to kind of look at the Affordable Care Act. Uh, it made some of these marginal changes, I would say, and it was probably one of the most hotly debated pieces of legislation in the last several decades. Yeah, you're saying something big has to change to make big changes. Bigger. Bigger. Bigger than the very big, small change. My point is that Accountable Care Act is extremely big as far as the uh, uh, political lightning rod that it creates in the U.S. discourse. And I think the impact is small. So you need bigger to have a bigger impact. And God knows what bigger is. Mm -hmm. Probably some significant outside forcing function. Interesting. And, and, and COVID wasn't enough to, to, to move the needle? because Evidently not. Yeah. I, it, 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 I think it accelerated. In some things. I think some things it definitely helped in terms of, you know, telehealth. Telehealth behavioral, and, for sure. Yeah. CMS started paying parity on these type of visits, which is a blessing. I think there's a pullback on some. Hospital at home uh, started to get reimbursed. There have been wonderful changes. Are they lasting? Are they foundational? I don't know. I hope so. Me too. Me too. I think like better quality of care and better healthcare outcomes should be made more accessible. That's that's my philosophy, and and uh, making that as accessible and affordable as possible, I think, is the betterment for for all as well as that individual. It's a uh, it's a complicated system out there. Extremely, I would say the most complicated system on the planet and not as a compliment, but as the reality. What, what's something, you know, that, that you're optimistic about, 
because uh, it's not all doom and gloom. I no. mean, I mean, we're 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 there is adoption of great great platforms like Laguna. Like there is more help at home. Like what's what's something that you're optimistic for this decade? Because it's not going to be 120 years that that we're living. No, but like yeah. like what do you think is moving the needle? I'm optimistic about us, and what I mean by that, and just to pat ourselves on the back, uh, there's an unprecedented attention to digital health thanks to covid there's an unprecedented influx of entrepreneurs who are choosing to go to healthcare and stay in healthcare that is a blessing and that is my biggest source of optimism capable people will figure it out not all of them not all of the time but you don't need everyone to win some will win and then more will win and that is a blessing for the individuals, for the system. Mm -hmm. So not everybody's going into finance anymore. They're, they're, they're coming to health and they're coming to bring better better solutions to the markets and the market will figure itself out to, to adopt those solutions that that really move the needle. Yes. I like that, that is extremely exciting in my view. I like that. You know, at, at the end of the day, it's, it's good good people making smart choices that impact the world for the better so you know i i'm i'm appreciative of of your choice and uh you know your partner's choice and everybody at at laguna for for making their impact and i'm yeah i'm definitely thankful for you coming here today in order to thank you for having me yeah so is so is there anything we have a very large platform of wonderful beautiful uh, dedicated listeners and you know is there anything that you want to uh, impart to them in terms of wisdom and ask or, or anything I welcome dialogue and some of the points we've discussed not as much I think about the philosophical uh, healthcare dynamic and forward-looking outlook but more so specifically about uh, views about home care models I think that is the future of healthcare moving more and more to effective and scalable home care delivery models. Telehealth is a massive enabler of it that is not going anywhere but up in my view, certainly the differentiated models of it. And to me, thinking about life context as a clinical model and some of the enabling as we think about it, the enabling technologies, enabling innovators in the space to build differentiated sustainable and kind of defensible solution to the space, I think is where companies will be able to set themselves apart. And that is a discourse that I'd love to have more of, and I don't see enough of it. And that is certainly what I'm spending my days and nights thinking and building. So nice. welcome more of that. So, so you guys heard it here. Uh, let's talk about more about care at home. Yoni is available. The email will be in, in, in the show notes well i really appreciate it yoni thank you for coming on uh and uh looking forward to our our next our next chat thank you for having me thanks for joining us on the grid brought to you by medcase if you were a fan of this podcast share like and follow and visit us at medcase.health for more information